Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Garden Favourites with me, Alan Titchmarsh. This is a brand new series of podcasts about, well, some of my favourite things in the garden. Simple. Does what it says on the watering can, as they say. You see, every gardener gardens differently. We all have our favourite plants, places to visit, and tools that we think are vital, indispensable, and the key to success in those essential garden jobs. We all have our reasons for our personal choices and we love to share. Well, maybe not the tools. In this series, I'm going to share some of my favourite things with you. Not kittens, whiskers or string, but the plants I love, my horticultural holiday destinations, and some of the books and objects that have become dear to me through my gardening years. There's something about spring that just says renewal. We've had a long, hard winter. It may be wet, it may be mild, it may be freezing. All kinds of weather seems to be thrown at us in winter. And the great thing about a cool, temperate climate is that it gives gardens the opportunity to look forward, to think, oh, everything will be better this coming year. And spring is that reawakening when the garden, hopefully, erupts into life. The very first plants that show their faces in spring which is really late winter, I suppose, but you've got to give the snowdrop its due, haven't you? Those pointy leaves pushing through the frozen earth. One of the other common names of the snowdrop is snow piercer. And if you look closely at the very tips of its leaves, you'll see that they're sort of botanically reinforced and they enable it to push up through the frozen earth and snow. And you'll often find, when snowdrops are coming up, that the earth around them is that little bit warmer. The snow has begun to melt. The bulbs are supposedly able to generate some kind of warmth that actually helps those shoots to penetrate the frozen crust. Up they come in January or February and then the buds push up and that dangling flower with its three outer tepals and three inner ones in various shades of white and yellow and green. Galanthophiles, they call them, the people who are absolutely passionate 
about snowdrops, and I have to confess to having about 45 different varieties myself. They grow in a little narrow bed alongside my greenhouse, all very carefully labelled, and I keep meaning to make a little plan just in case one of the labels gets lost. I should be very cross. And you know, the most expensive snowdrop was a new record being set this year, I think. £1,850 for a single bulb, plus £2.40 postage. The nerve, eh? These online auctions, I don't know. But no garden should be without snowdrops. They give us hope for years to come. Any spot among shrubs, even around trees, where sometimes you think it's a bit too rooty for them, they'll cope. What they really resent is being allowed to dry out, so always plant the bulbs in the green when there's some foliage on them, just after they've finished flowering. And that way you're assured that they won't have dried out. Two or three inches underground, they'll disappear come late spring, and then... You'll wait and wait and wait, and then the following year, up they come, reliable as the sun. I do love yellow flowers in spring. They sort of remind me that sunshine is important to all plants that grow. And daffodils and narcissi are unbeatable flowers for spring. I particularly love the miniature daffodils because it seems to me that their proportions are so right in the garden. They're not like those tall King Alfreds and fortune daffs, which a friend of mine calls cooking daffodils. I think it's a lovely term. It implies a certain kind of coarseness. But the thing about those tall ones is as soon as there's any rough weather any wind and rain, to bow down those heads. They they dip right down to the ground, allow slugs and snails to hop on board and chew them to bits. So I've stopped growing really tall daffs, and I stick instead to those miniatures that are only about a foot high, things like Jet Fire and Little Witch and Jenny, and the all-time favourite, Tete-a-Tete, which doesn't always produce two flowers atop every stalk, but it often does, which has given rise to... Its name of tete-a-tete, one head alongside another. The important thing about those daffs is not to be too eager to chop the foliage off once the flowers fade. Let it languish for a good six weeks. Then you can scissor it off at ground level. No elastic bands, please. And no knotting it into a pigtail. All those leaves want to be able to absorb sunshine individually and pass the food down to the bulb below to make sure that next year's flowers come up. So treat your daffs well, use the miniatures, and you'll find that they really do give you value year in, year out. By the time April comes, I've really rather had enough of yellow, and that's why I never plant yellow tulips. I've had daffodils that are bright yellow. Why would I want a tulip, which will follow on from the daffodils in yellow? That's just me. But I do love my tulips in scarlet and orange and pink and white. Glorious ones. There's an enormous one which rejoices under the name of El Nino. It has a stem that's almost three feet long and an enormous flower at the top which is streaked with orange and vermilion. And you think, how can all this have come out of a bulb that's only a little bit bigger than a conker? They always tell you with tulips, don't plant them until November. Well, quite frankly, if you get your tulip bulbs in October, I'd stick them in then. Not going to do them any harm. 
the ones that stay in the garden are there all year round, so they don't get dug up. We used to dig tulips up, and certainly bedding tulips that I use, I do take them up at the end of the flowering season, dry them off, and then replant the following autumn, the largest bulb in the cluster that you'll find when you dig up that faded tulip. But you can leave tulips in the garden all year round. Some varieties do well, others not so. The secret is to plant them fairly deeply, eight or nine inches down if you want them to keep coming up year after year. One reliable flower naturalised like that in the garden is spring green, the tulip which is white with a green streak running up it. And that's really good at coming up year after year in well-drained soil in a sunny spot. But for me, the tulips I enjoy the most are those that are planted in containers. 10 or 12 inch terracotta pots you can fit 10 bulbs fairly tightly together about two inches apart plant them again october november put them in the lee of the house wall or by the shed and then as soon as they come through you can heave them out onto the terrace or the patio and watch as they develop and in april and may oh the tulip is the one flower i wouldn't be without When it comes to spectacular intricacy of a flower, it takes an awful lot to beat the Lenten hellebore. The hellebore hybrids that have flowers that may be white or pale yellow or green or plum purple or pink and the paler colours are often contrastingly spotted with darker purple. They are such good doers, hellebores. You plant them and they seldom need disturbance afterwards. The problem is they will seed themselves around and if you don't want an absolute forest of small plants, you do need to weed some of them out. But why not plant some of them on the veg patch and just see what you get from your hybridising? They're great among shrubs at the front of borders for spring interest. The thing about these Lenten hellebores, the hellebore hybrids, is that in winter, make sure at the the very end of autumn, early winter if you like, that you scissor off those evergreen leaves at ground level. Otherwise they can have this nasty thing called black rot and they also allow mice free reign to shelter underneath and nibble at the flower buds. So if I were you, I'd cut off all that foliage in about December or January so that you can see the buds as they unfurl and the mice don't have any cover. And you'll watch these hellebores push up and up and up. Glorious clusters of flower, particularly like the sort of plummy pink ones. What you will find is that they don't cut terribly well. They wilt and flop. So I pinch off individual flowers and float about a dozen of them in a wide bowl on the middle of the kitchen table and they look just like gloriously exotic water lilies. Really easy to grow in any ordinary well-drained soil. No garden should be without hellebores. When it comes to more statuesque spring flowers, and it's sort of late spring really for this particular one that I almost buy on sight every time I see it in a garden centre, Viburnum tomentosum, an absolute glorious plant, sometimes called the wedding cake tree, though that really is cornus controversa, the tall wedding cake tree. But Viburnum tomentosum is a shrubby version which has these horizontal branches, naked in winter, and then as spring comes, little tufts of green leaves 
push out of these horizontal branches. If you look in the centre, you'll see a tiny flower cluster just forming. That will expand over the weeks until in about April. These large creamy white flower heads stud every branch. It is so spectacular. The thing it doesn't like is drying out at the roots too much, in which case the leaves themselves will start to go a bit crispy at the edges. So if you can find it a spot in dappled shade and decent soil that doesn't dry out too much, it will grow in time two to three metres high and three or four metres across. Give it space. It'll take a while to, to reach that. And if you can find a corner of your garden where it grows. Oh, you will love it. And what you can also do, if you like, to decorate it once it's finished flowering in spring is to plant a clematis at the extremity of its branches. If it's a clematis that's a variety of clematis texensis or clematis viticella, you can chop them right down to the ground every winter and the new shoots that come can be trained over the viburnum to take over once it's flowered. And you get a second season of flowering thanks to the clematis. Some people call it cheating. Um, I call it thoughtful gardening. Finding a tree for a small garden that looks good in spring and isn't bad in summer and then looks good again in autumn is not terribly easy. But if you plump for the snowy mespilus, Amelanchia, you'll get the best of all worlds. It isn't a huge tree and its canopy is relatively light. There's nothing on it in winter, it's quite naked. And then the leaves will start to unfurl in spring and they're pink. Astonishing sight. The leaves expand. They become slightly less pink, nearer to green, but be, while they're still pink and sort of purpley, the flowers will open. A glorious array of delicate white clusters of bloom that studs the tree. There's your first season of interest. The pink opening leaves and then the white flowers that go with it. The flowers will fade. The foliage will become green. But then in autumn, when the winds blow and the weather gets a little more chilly, they will redden up. You get glorious autumn colour from Amelanchia and any tree that will give you more than one season of interest and not eat you out of house and home gets my vote. There's one tiny bulb which really does well in grass with me for spring showing and that's Crocus Thomasinianus. They're so beloved of gardeners that we've taken to calling them Tommies. Have you planted your Tommies yet? You can get a, a bulb planter with a very tiny core remover on the end of it that you can push in with your foot. And if you go over a lump of grass in your lawn, perhaps at the extremity of the lawn, not right in the middle, and you make lots of little holes about two or three inches deep, taking these cores of earth out, then you can go over it and you can plant a hundred or more tommies, pushing each one down into an individual hole, replacing the core of soil, space them six or ten inches apart, and next spring, after you've planted them, you'll probably forget where you put them and they'll remind you. And in the sunshine, those starry purple flowers with their orange stigma in the centre will astound you. You'll go out with your camera or your mobile phone 
and take photographs of them pushing up through the grass. They're glorious. And their foliage afterwards, which does need to be left, isn't nearly so extravagant as the foliage of narcissi and daffodils. It doesn't call you much of a problem, but do leave it on for a good six weeks after flowering before you run the mower over it. Crocus thomasinianus, on the corner or on edge of a lawn, planted, as I say, just a few inches apart. Goodness me, it's a spring delight. So if you get rather fed up with your garden in winter, it's looking damp, it's looking drear, plant a few bulbs, the odd tree, the odd shrub, which you know will offer spring interest. And bulbs in particular are firework plants. Somebody else has done all the work for you. All you have to do is light the blue touch paper and stand well back. What a sight it'll be. That's it from me, Alan Titchmarsh. Till the next time, whatever the weather, enjoy your garden. Garden Favourites was presented by me, Alan Titchmarsh. The producer is Lucy Ditchmont. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And you can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Acast to never miss an episode. See you next time.